Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be the host of the channel today. Today, I'll be talking with Mary Elizabeth Murphy, who's a professor of history at Eastern Michigan University, and we'll be speaking about her new book, Jim Crow Capital, Women and Black Freedom Struggles in Washington, D.C. from 1920 to 1945, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press last year. Hi, Mary Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm excited to talk about your book, but before we dive in, I thought we'd start with our usual question of how you got interested in history and then how you got interested in this topic. Well, history really gave me the tools to understand the root of inequalities in the United States. And so I am very passionate about all forms of history, but I would say that I'm most passionate about African-American history. And when I began to take my first African-American history classes in college, I had so many aha moments because history really enabled me to understand why there was so much economic injustice and racial injustice in the United States. And there were really two aspects of African-American history that I found to be completely fascinating. The first was the idea of an early or long civil rights movement in the 20th century. And so I was just completely riveted by the ways that African-Americans would press for justice and equality in the era of Jim Crow, whether it was staging streetcar boycotts or fighting for the right to vote in an era of really stringent disfranchisement. But along with that, I really developed a passion for African-American women's history, and particularly the ways that working class Black women participated in political campaigns. And so the scholarship of people like Elsa Barkley Brown and Tara Hunter really inspired me to conduct research that put working class Black women at the center of history. And in terms of the origins of this precise project, I lived in Washington, D.C. while I was attending graduate school at the University of Maryland. And the city was filled with such a rich heritage of Black history. And an early earlier generation of scholars, such as Sharon Harley and Elizabeth Clark Lewis and Constance McLaughlin Green, had chronicled Black Washington, but I felt that the interwar period was less examined. And I was really interested in studying the local national dynamic that really played out in the city. And so the historian Kate Mazur had brilliantly discussed the Reconstruction era in Washington, and I was really curious about the later period. Um, And so initially, I was going to write a project that looked at Black men and women in Washington, D.C. in the 20s and 30s. But the second I got to the archives, I realized that I had to put women at the center of the project because Black women were really spearheading the majority of the political campaigns in the 20s and 30s. And so examining that gender dynamic um, was something that I really wanted to explore. Okay. 
So I am really interested and enjoyed looking at and thinking about that local national dynamic that you mentioned as you were talking about this project and why you pursued it as you did. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about, or at least explain to our listeners a little bit more about why Washington, D.C. is a really good place to examine this dynamic. Of course, you were in Washington, D.C., so there's some sort of convenience location there, but your book makes a really clear case for why it's a particularly important place and in some ways um, unique or, or special in thinking about this particular type of history on both a local and national level. Yeah, exactly. So for those listeners who aren't aware, um, Washington, D.C. was really an experimental testing ground for reconstruction politics in the United States. And so stretching all the way back to the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln actually emancipated slaves in Washington, D.C. earlier than he passed um, the Emancipation Proclamation. And in the 1860s and 1870s, a group of white Republican congressmen crafted policies in Washington, D.C. that were sort of experimental, that became the framework for reconstruction policies um, across the country. And so Black men in Washington, D.C. were the first ones in the country to cast ballots, and um, legislators passed really progressive policies in Washington, D.C., But then by the mid-1870s, they decided that this experiment did not work, and they feared that African-American men were wielding too much political power. And so they actually shut down the local government in the city, and they made Congress um, the the people who would be in charge of the city. And so the historian Kate Mazur brilliantly shows the ways that this set the precedent for Southern disfranchisement, for the process of taking away the vote for African-American men in the South. And so I was really curious about what those memories were like, because Washington, D.C. had had such a progressive political culture, and then all of that was taken away. And so I was interested in the ways that local men and women remembered that earlier period of voting in the city. But also I was interested in in sort of how a political movement, what that would look like in D.C. when people couldn't even vote. So the period of my book chronicles a period when no person in the city can cast a ballot. Men can't vote, women can't vote, African-Americans can't vote, and white Americans can't vote. Um, But at the same time that citizens don't really have a local government, they do have this power in Congress. And so I was interested in the ways that African-American women who might have labored in the U.S. Capitol could listen to political conversations that were happening and use um, federal power rather than local power to enact change. And so particularly in the 1920s, a group of Black women testify in Congress, they lobby politicians, and they um, really kind of use their location in the nation's capital to advocate on behalf of African-Americans nationally. So let's talk a little bit more about the 1920s and what those um, women are doing in the capital. And of course, during the 1920s, in addition to all the stuff that you've just been talking about on the local level, this is also a period of time when 
women nationally have only recently gotten the right to vote. And at the same time, African-Americans, especially in the South, have been seeing uh, the Jim Crow system become more and more effective in disenfranchising them. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what kinds of things they're doing, which you've already started to touch on, and how those are going? Yeah. So in 1920, um, the states ratify the 19th Amendment, which technically gives all women in the United States the right to vote. But as many scholars have demonstrated, this actually did not happen for a lot of Black women in the South. And it only happened for a tiny bit of women in Washington, D.C. One of the kind of interesting things about D.C. is that it's such a cosmopolitan city. And so there are women who live in the city who are from Michigan and South Carolina and Illinois and New York. And so some people who move to Washington, D.C. still maintain their state residency so that they can cast absentee ballots. But because most Black women in the city aren't voting, they are seizing on the leverage of the 19th Amendment. And so it's in this era that African-American women form literally dozens of political organizations. And they're incredibly energized by the passage of the 19th Amendment and also the language of World War II. World War One and its message of democracy. So in this period, Black women form groups to pass a federal anti-lynching bill. They form many different partisan political organizations. A lot of them are Republican organizations, but not all of them are. Um, Black women form an organization called the International Council of Women of the Darker Races that really advocates for global issues. Um, And then they also form an organization called the National Association of Wage Earners, which is um, kind of a labor union for Black women. Um, And one of the things that I discovered is that even though Black women across the country are forming organizations and joining these organizations, almost all of them are based in D.C. and have headquarters that are pretty close to each other. Um, And then in terms of how progress is happening... I would say that um, Black women are pretty successful in starting these organizations, but as so many scholars have demonstrated, sustaining an organization and a political campaign is exhausting. And it requires an incredible amount of time and labor and momentum. And most social movements have a relatively short lifespan. So Black women are founding a lot of organizations, but a lot of these organizations don't survive longer than 10 years. Um, And so the two big organizations that I write about are the National Association of Wage Earners, which is a labor union, and it succeeds in drawing over a thousand members. And then another one um, are kind of anti-lynching organizations. So Black women form um, an organization called the Anti-Lynching Crusaders that is designed to unite one million women across the country to stop lynching and pass a federal anti-lynching law. And even though the House of Representatives does pass an anti-lynching bill, it always gets filibustered in the Senate. Um, But a lot of Black women who are affiliated with these political organizations are testifying in Congress and lobbying um, to support their causes. 
So another thing you talk about, especially with lynching, is the importance of the fact that Washington, D.C. is this cosmopolitan place where you have a lot of people who have come from other places, um, especially during this period. And many listeners probably are familiar with um, the movement of African-Americans you know, leading into this period. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, those memories and their importance to women's activism. And maybe even if you, if you wanted to pick one particular woman to talk about, um, you have some really specific, um, or you have many wonderful, rich, um, specific leaders who you talk about. Um, readers can read the book or listeners can read the book in order to uh, hear about all of them. But maybe if you might talk about one or two of them. I have a woman in mind. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in this period, one of the things that I was really interested in is this idea that even though lynching only happens to specific people, the memories of this grief and trauma are communal. And so I think most African-Americans in this period held some kind of connection to lynching, whether it was a friend or a family member or a community member or a relative. Every African-American really had this deep connection to this racial violence because it is deeply traumatic. And so in the book, I talk about the ways that no person in Washington, D.C. was the precise victim of lynching, but many people who moved to the city held connections to this collective trauma. Um, And one person in particular who really typified this process was a Black woman who I discovered named Marion Butler. And Marion Butler had just this fascinating life. Marion Butler was born in Barnwell, North Carolina. I'm sorry, Barnwell, South Carolina. And um, when she was a young child, she actually witnessed the Barnwell Massacre where Black men were taken from jail and shot to death. And in fact, her sister married the son of one of the victims. So she held this very personal connection to lynching. And Marion Butler eventually moved from South Carolina to Washington, D.C., And she joined many of the political organizations that I talked about. And in 1926, Marion Butler actually testified in a hearing in the House of Representatives about this lynching. And she actually told white um, representatives what it felt like to carry this memory in her. Um, And so Marion Butler's activism really illuminates the ways that Black women in Washington, D.C., even though they couldn't vote, they did have this access to federal politics. And so she was able to use her voice in support of an anti-lynching law. Okay. And so as the 1920s go on, the uh, anti-lynching activism is effective in some ways. As you mentioned, they do get this legislation through the House and um, make some changes, but the legislation does not become federal law. And could you talk then about how the how women's activism starts to change moving into the 1930s, and in particular, this shift towards some more local issues? Absolutely. And so in the book, I really argue that Black women in the 1920s see their location in the nation's capital as an opportunity to improve conditions for African-Americans living across the country. 
But by the late 1920s, a series of crises erupt in the city that tell Black women, actually, there are really major problems that we need to address in the city. Now, I want to preface this by saying Washington, D.C. was not a racially egalitarian place in the 1920s. It was deeply segregated. Nobody could vote. And violence and economic injustice were really rampant. But these conditions really worsen in the late 1920s. And so the combined impacts of an uptick in police brutality and the crisis of the Great Depression convinced so many of the same women who had been advocating for national policies to reorient the, their activism toward local policies. Okay. And so then what sorts of issues are they talking about? I mean, your book talks about several of them, um, of, of the types of issues that they're looking into in the 1930s, but could you pick one of them and, and explore a little bit more why they're picking that issue? Exactly. Um, so one of the first issues I would say is the crisis of police brutality. And between 1928 and 1938, white police officers in Washington, D.C. shoot um, and kill 40 Black men in the city. And so initially in my research, I had thought that Black women were part of this campaign to end police violence against men. But then, and I can talk more about this when we get into sources, I began to scrutinize my evidence more carefully, and I discovered that, in fact, not only did white police officers shoot and kill Black men, but they also assaulted at least 29 Black women. And so I chronicle the process by which so many Black women who had been involved in ending kind of national violence through lynching reorient their activism to focus on police brutality in D.C. that they actually term urban lynching. And I look at the ways that Black women work to make sure that all African Americans can be safe in the city. Um, and this included things like fighting back against police violence, um, protesting to the Board of Commissioners and advocating for the appointment of more African-American officers and trying to um, get more justice in trial boards. And do you think this kind of activism has some greater success in Washington, D.C. than some other places? And, and there has been a little bit of scholarship, of course, thinking about police violence um, recently. But can you make some of those comparisons and talk a little bit about why, I mean, your, your book makes an argument that there are particular reasons why holding police accountable um, or particular legal aspects to holding police accountable um, that are important to account for the places where we see successes and failures in the story. Yeah. So anytime African-Americans raise the issue of injustice in Washington, D.C., it automatically has a little bit more political leverage than, say, injustice in Memphis, Tennessee, or Hattiesburg, Mississippi, precisely because Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. And so African-Americans, Black women, are able to seize on a little bit of this political capital in their campaigns against police brutality. Um, and so instruments like the Black press and Black organizations are really able to publicize this. 
But I also think that African-American women in D.C. just wage this incredibly robust political campaign um, against police brutality. And they do succeed in getting one white U.S. representative to conduct an investigation into um, police violence. But another thing, one of the things that I kind of discovered that's a little bit ironic is that you know, I define police brutality not just as assaults and murders at the hands of the police, but also issues of negligence. And I discovered that toward um, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, there is an unknown murderer in the city who begins to murder and rape black women. And all of the victims are black, but then one of the victims is white. It's a white woman named Betty Streif, who's a government clerk from Iowa. And the police did not conduct any investigations when the victims were black women. But when it was a white woman, the U.S. Congress had a special investigation into um, the culture of the police. And they conduct hearings. And there it becomes very clear that um, police violence is a problem. Um, but in fact, some uh, some Southern congressmen actually praise police brutality in Washington. And that was a really disturbing moment for me to see the ways that living in Washington could be liberatory sometimes, but also deeply dangerous in that Southern congressmen could kind of use residents of Washington as pawns in their white supremacist projects. But actually, that investigation convinces the city that they need to hire a new police chief. And so they hire a police chief who has been so familiar with black activism in the city that he recognizes it's a problem. And so he triples the number of black officers. He um, uh, allows for more hours in police court and actually meets with black communities. And he's actually seen as an example of a white police officer in the 1940s who is trying to address issues of interracial police violence. Um, and so in that case, sort of local and national forces intersect to um, bring down patterns of police violence. And so how does class fit into this story, whether police violence specifically, but also this activism more broadly? How is class informing what women are doing, how women are being targeted, what kinds of rights they have, those kinds of things? Um, class plays a really big role in this book. Um, it was really important to me, as I kind of alluded to earlier, to write um, a book that not just looked at middle class and elite activists. Washington, D.C. has a really large black middle class. But 83% of black women who work labor as cooks and maids and laundresses. So 83% of black women are actually working in uh, working class jobs. And so class um, really kind of affects your quality of life in D.C. 
Um, the city of Washington is divided into four quadrants, and Northwest is the largest quadrant, and it's the wealthiest quadrant. If you live in Southwest, Southeast, or Northeast, you have much more limited municipal services, and the streets may not be paved with asphalt. They may be might even be paved with rubble or just be dirt streets. You have limited fire and police protection, and um, you may not even have regular mail delivery. So class really kind of shapes a person's quality of life in the city. Um, And I argue that women who are working class are much more vulnerable to things like police brutality, um, and they may have limited access to education and other kinds of services. But I also argue that class shapes women's political activism. So in the book, I argue that black that there's a spectrum of politics that Black women participate in. And some Black women practice really formal politics where they testify in Congress or they lobby politicians or they join organizations. But then some women work during the day and they may not have time to participate in this kind of formal political activism. But on the weekends, they may march in um, a political protest or attend an organizational meeting. And then some women may not even have the resources to participate in those kinds of formal politics. But at their workplace, they express labor resistance and they ask for higher wages and they demand dignity for themselves as Black women workers, or they might fight back against police brutality. And so I argue that this informal politics is still part of politics. And we really need to examine the spectrum of political activities that Black women participate in. And one thing you do talk about, especially for those women who are middle class, is that some of them have particularly um, increased access, we might say, to some of those levers of more um, formal political power, in part through connections and things like that, especially over uh, early on. And could you talk a little bit about how middle class and and working class women are relating to each other in these in these movements are you seeing alliances across class are you seeing sort of um just a spectrum of different kinds of activities as you just talked about um but that are kind of going on um in, in tandem and in parallel to each other yeah i would say that both processes work at the same time um, one of the things that I do in this book is, you know, along with wanting to really pay attention to class dynamics, is that I wanted to research not only the leaders of organizations, but the constituencies of organizations. And so um, in this project, I was fortunate enough to have sources that showed me not only who was leading organizations, but who was joining organizations. And so I would say the organization that had the largest cross-class membership was the National Association of Wage Earners, which was the kind of labor union for Black women. Over a thousand people joined the organization in D.C., and Black um, working class women composed 46% of the membership. So that organization is unusual in that there is there are such close ties between working class and middle class women. Not many other 
political organizations like the National League of Republican Colored Women or the Women's Political Study Club have such a large roster of working class members. But I argue that um, elite and middle class women were very, very sensitive to the needs of working class women. And class operates a little bit differently in African-American communities than it does in white communities because middle class women, middle class black women are sometimes reliant on black working class women. So an example would be during the 1930s, hairdressers actually objected to um, some New Deal policies that wanted to regulate their hours because their um, patronage came from Black maids. And Black maids could only get their hair done after they got off work. And so regulating their hours after five o'clock would have serious economic consequences for Black middle-class hairdressers. Um, And then the final thing that I would say is that Class can be kind of a fluid category in African-American history. And the black middle class looks a little different than the white middle class. Um, And the woman I talked about earlier, Marion Butler, who testifies in the 1926 hearing on anti-lynching, she was a seamstress. But during the Great Depression, she was in danger of losing her house and was working as a maid. So she went from being a seamstress and having kind of a middle-class job to having a very working-class job. Um, And so because I studied the period of the Great Depression, um, I was really sensitive to the ways that people's economic class could shift. Mm -hmm. So you talk a lot about women's activism for improved economic conditions um, and for more economic justice. And I wanted to ask you about one other group because I think it's particularly interesting in your um, book and one that probably a lot of people are less familiar with. And that is women who are, or black women who are pushing for and looking for federal jobs, in particular federal cleaning jobs. And so I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about why they're doing that and sort of how that fits into this fight. Yeah. So in my chapter on economic justice during the Great Depression, I look at the ways that Black women use the New Deal as an opportunity to imagine a society that has much more economic justice. And I argue that Black women see economic justice in a really broad way. Not only do they want federal protections like a minimum wage law or the passage of Social Security, but they also imagine economic justice to be dignity and access to welfare provision and safety at their workplace. And most listeners on this podcast will know that the passage of Social Security in 1935 excludes the vast majority of Black women um, because the Social Security Act does not cover domestic servants and it doesn't cover, cover farmers. And so African-American women are really vocal critics of the fact that the most groundbreaking piece of legislation in the New Deal does not cover them. And so African-American women protest the fact that they are not included in Social Security. But I discovered that Black women not only stage political protests, but also sort of stage um, kind of grassroots movements to make their economic predicament visible. And so in Washington, D.C., 
the lowest paying federal job is to be a charwoman. And charwomen are the workers who clean federal offices. And even though charwomen are the lowest paid workers in the federal capital, these were positions that were incredibly valuable to Black women because they paid about $1,000 a year and they gave Black women um, access to sick benefits um, and gave them sort of a measure of security. And so I discovered that in 1938, the Capitol announced that it was accepting applications for charwomen. And they were accepting a large number, um, between one and 2,000 applications. But instead, even the night before um, the applications were set to be distributed, Black women began to line up outside the police precinct where applications would be distributed. And by the next morning, almost 20,000 mostly Black women were in a rush to receive these applications. And this became known as the charwoman riot. And I argue that this charwoman riot illustrated Black women's quest for federal benefits, that as people who were excluded from the Social Security Act by literally marching with their feet to get charwomen applications, Black women were expressing their individual and collective desire for economic justice in the New Deal era. And so from this activism, your book argues that after these fights or or out of these fights for economic justice, for police violence, that women are thinking more and more about what we might uh, more typically call civil rights, right? Things, things yeah. of voting and, and those kind of more formal rights. And so your last couple of chapters talks about those fights or talk about those fights. Um, and I was wondering if we might talk a little bit about those. And I was particularly interested in thinking about some of what's going on during World War II, because as I'm sure many listeners know, we often talk about World War II as being a really important moment to thinking about uh, the the civil rights activism that comes after World War II. Um, So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about what's happening in Washington, D.C., and sort of how how that's particular, again, to the local situation, but also part of this national story. Yeah, so I argue that Black women don't really compartmentalize their struggle for justice. That at the same time that Black women are fighting for things like safety in the city and better working conditions, they're also fighting for an end to racial segregation and the right to vote. Um, And so they're not really saying one issue is better than the other. So I argue that Black women don't compartmentalize their struggle for justice, that the right to be safe in the city um, and not be assaulted by police officers is equally as important as the right to earn a decent wage and have a good living as it is the right to vote or um, not experience racial segregation. And so Black women don't really say one issue is more important than the other. But I do make the argument that the campaigns against police brutality and the campaign for economic justice really gives Black Washingtonians clarity about other matters that need to be addressed and that it really kind of energizes them. And so the fact that they are able to lower patterns of police brutality in the city and really march with their feet for economic justice gives them some confidence to be bolder in their civil rights activities. And so I 
make the argument that these campaigns tell black Washingtonians, you know, we also need the right to vote and we no longer have tolerance for racial segregation, whether it's at lunch counters or on buses. So by World War II, Black women are really kind of energized. And there's a really kind of interesting gender dynamic that happens in the city because a lot of Black men are drafted to fight in World War II. And so Black women really realize this is sort of our civil rights duty at home. And so in the period of World War II, there's just this really profound uptick in day-to-day resistance against segregation. And so I look at how a range of really ordinary Black women begin to get arrested on buses traveling between D.C. and Virginia, and the ways that Black students at Howard University begin to stage some of the first sit-ins against racial segregation in the nation's capital. And so then could you just talk a little bit about how these sit-ins and how that kind of transportation um, resistance and and activism will lead into what comes after or will help contribute to what comes after? Yeah. And so political protests during World War II are really kind of the height of Black women's activism. And by staging sit-ins at lunch counters in the city, and by being very visible in um, getting arrested on buses, Black women are able to successfully draw national attention to issues of racial segregation in the nation's capital. And the period of World War II is a very sensitive time for the federal government because the United States has really emerged as the leader, not only of democracy, but sort of of capitalism in the world. And so showing these examples of injustice in the nation's capital proves very embarrassing. Um, And so I would argue that by World War II, Black women are really able to get the government sort of on their side. And so a couple of things happen. Um, In 1946, the Supreme Court actually strikes down um, segregation on interstate transportation. And that case had its origins um, in many Black women protesting this and getting arrested. Additionally, in the period after World War II, the Cold War really, in- uh, the Cold War begins and then intensifies. And so Black women are able to convince politicians and legislators and journalists that issues of racial segregation in the nation's capital would prove to be a diplomatic embarrassment. Um, And so the Supreme Court also begins to rule for integration in the nation's capital, and they publish a really damning report that shows um, the instances of racial segregation in D.C., And I argue that Black women in Washington, D.C. in the 20s, 30s, and 40s really pioneer the tactics, whether it's getting arrested on buses, staging sit-ins at lunch counters, or protesting in in mass marches and mass meetings that will become the staples for the national Black freedom struggle. And that Black women argue that it's first necessary to um, kind of test these tactics in D.C., and then they can become examples for the rest of the country. So I want to talk a little bit about your sources, but before we do that, since you're 
we've been talking about sort of what comes at the end of your book and what comes after the end of your book and how these tactics will, will feed into um, later activism. Could you talk a little bit about what lessons we might draw from your book for today? Absolutely. Um, this is not anything that I did, but the activists that I write about, I think, are pretty inspiring and give us some very compelling examples um, to think about. Um, I think it's pretty remarkable that Black women who couldn't even vote in elections were eventually able to enact some change. Um, And so I would say one of the crises that we're really currently dealing with is interracial police violence. And um, I want to say that I wrote my police brutality chapter in sort of the height of Black Lives Matter. And so I wrote it between 2013 and 2015 when we witnessed the deaths of people like Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, and Sandra Bland. And so I think one of the lessons that we can draw from Black women in D.C. is that they really did treat interracial police violence as an epidemic. And the Black press was incredibly vigilant about reporting every case of police violence. And Black citizens actually held their own police brutality trials to really kind of try to enact justice when the white legal structure would not give them that. But they also met with police officers and they met with the board of commissioners and so many white police officers and the eventual head of the police department witnessed this black activism. So I'm not saying that we need more activism. I think people are really, really um, responsive and robust with Black Lives Matter. But I think there are lessons for white police officers and white power structures to understand the tenor of Black resistance. Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful. I you I asked that question in part because I'm always interested in that question. But also, since you do sort of frame your book by highlighting um, the ways in which thinking about and looking at this past activists activism might help us think about politics today. Um, and I do think that you're right. There are many lessons for, um, about police violence, but about, you know, getting involved in general as well. Yes. And I also think that we need to stop. We really need to be aware of the ways that gender shapes police violence. I had to look a little bit more carefully, but the reality is that black women and women of color are major victims and very, very vulnerable to police and carceral violence. And I think the the story of black women activists in D.C., they were very, very attuned to these questions of gender as well as race. Absolutely. And that leads nicely into thinking about sources. So what kinds of sources did you use and how did you find um, not not just these stories in general, but also you've talked about what every good historian does is when you, you know, look at the sources, you sometimes find that the story is a little bit different than what you expected. So where did you find some surprising information? Okay. So I think the the source that changed this chapter and it changed this book and made it what it is um, was a really traditional source, but I think I used it in a different way. Um, so 
I investigated a lot of manuscript collections of Black women that I write about. Um, I was really fortunate that so many of the women actually had repositories in archives and libraries across the country. But one day, I went into the Nanny Helen Burroughs papers in the Library of Congress, and I knew that one of the boxes um, in her collection was related to the National Association of Wage Earners. And so I was expecting to find like correspondence or perhaps some some letters or something. But instead, I opened up the folder and all of the membership cards of the organization spilled out. And these cards had information about each member of the organization, the occupation that they identified, the street they lived on, and the person who recruited them to the organization. And so that discovery was a game changer for me because over a thousand Black women joined that organization in D.C. And so I spent a couple of years mapping those networks. And so that source enabled me to learn about the laundresses and the domestic workers and the cooks that all joined the organization, but also the women that they knew. And so I was then able to understand Black women's churches and fraternal orders and neighborhood streets and kind of get at some of those social networks that Black women were affiliated with. Um, And so obviously manuscript sources were really, really important. But I really identify as a social historian of politics. And so for me, what was equally important were census records, city directories, um, Sanborn maps, which are digital fire insurance maps that enabled me to plot the location of so many women in the city and understand their connection between their residents and their streets and their churches and their sites of labor. Um, but then also black and white newspapers were really important. So there were t- there were a couple of different black newspapers um, that were in D.C. at the time, but then also um, black national newspapers like the Baltimore Afro-American or the Pittsburgh Courier all cover D.C. Um, and then government records were really, really helpful as well. Um, and so... I was able to get legislative hearings where Black women testified. I was able to learn when members of Congress would discuss Black Washingtonians in the pages of the congressional record and get some of that. Um, But I just want to say for police brutality, for my police brutality chapter, that was tricky. So um, the records for the police court in Washington, D.C. were not preserved. And I investigated the records of the Metropolitan Police Department, but they rarely ever discussed issues of police violence. And so for writing the police brutality chapter, I had to rely almost entirely on newspaper articles. And so I told myself the way that I would kind of cross check things is I would try to find more than one instance of a person being victimized. And so um, some Black organizations like the NAACP and the National Negro Congress would compile reports. And so I was able to cross-reference the names of people from newspapers with their um, records in the reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those um, police violence chapters and, and just research on policing in general is, is really infamously difficult um, for thinking about and getting access to those records. 
Absolutely. Yes. I guess you, you know that very well <laughs> since you're a scholar of violence. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I've, I've talked to, interviewed a few people doing projects that have investigated in, uh, investigated police and they've had similar problems. So I'm, yeah. I'm very sympathetic to those. Um, I am curious on um, your mapping of networks um, sounds amazing, but also really incredibly um, challenging. And, and certainly the results of that, the fruitfulness of that are clear in your book, but how did you logistically um go about that kind of um, network mapping and, and just keeping track of everyone? Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I spent a couple of years developing a master Excel spreadsheet um, where I could keep track of all of the members of that particular organization. But it, it was very time consuming and tedious. But it really paid off because that gave me a thousand characters to think about in the book. And if a black woman joined the National Association of Wage Earners, it was very likely that she probably joined another organization as well. And so that gave me kind of a constituency. And I was able to understand which women lived in which neighborhoods, which women had different occupations, which women belonged to different churches. And so Studying that so intensively kind of helped me to understand the Black community in Washington, D.C., and that gave me insights into other social movements where I didn't always have the membership lists. Well, that's impressive. I, I'm um, grateful that you stuck with that tedious work to produce a wonderful book. Um, <laughs> before we go, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, yeah. So my new project um, is kind of inspired by the last portion of the book, where I look at the Supreme Court case Morgan versus Virginia. So in my new project, I'm really interested in the moment when Americans stop taking trains and start to take large scale buses. And I discovered that the creation of bus and busing technology coincides perfectly with the Great Migration. And so I'm interested in African Americans who migrate to northern and midwestern cities and then use buses like Greyhound and Trailways to visit the South. And obviously, African Americans encounter things like racial segregation, racial violence, um, and all kinds of injustices. And so I'm interested in the ways that they use buses as part of the early civil rights movement. But in addition to kind of the experiences of riding the bus, I'm also really interested in bus corporations and their racial politics. So I've begun to investigate the archival papers of bus companies like Greyhound um, and really think about the public message that they're sending about the kinds of passengers that they want um, to be riding their buses. And there's also a black bus company that is founded in the 1920s and lasts until the 1970s. Called the Safe Bus Company in Winston Salem, North Carolina. That sounds amazing. I look forward to reading it and hope we can have you back on when it's done. <laughs> Many years from now, but thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I enjoyed reading the book and speaking to you about it. Thank you so much for this delightful interview. <laughs>